Well, good morning, FCC Willington. Are you there? Are you alive out there? Somebody give me a shout and give me a wave of your hands. Woo! And uh, greetings as well to those of you who are joining us uh, from the city campus, uh, FCC Willington. Why don't you give a shout out to them so that they'll know they are loved this morning? Come on, let's give them a big shout out. Thank you. So good to be back here. The last time I was here, we were in the middle of a global pandemic problem. Uh, now we're in the middle of a, uh, you know, a rousing revival run. So. Uh, thank you, Pastor Benny, for this kind uh, opportunity just to take uh, the final in your series on, on revival. It's been a great opportunity and a great blessing, I know, uh, so far to all of you. And every time I come to Perth, uh, it's uh, one of the great kind of uh, blessings is just to be able to connect with uh, my buddy Benny here. And, you know, we, we cross kind of pollinate each other in ideas. And I go back to Malaysia absolutely revived, you know, personally. So that's why I, I love uh, uh, fellowshipping uh, with your pastor uh, very much. Um, and, but what a difference 12 months has made, you know, we went from a pandemic, now we're open completely. I know in WA it's been quite different from the rest of the world, you've been open most of the pandemic. But for the rest of the world, you know, it's been a, a great, great uh, change for all of us. Um, but today, uh, I want to tackle the whole subject of knowing what revival is like when it lands. And I know that uh, in part of your revival series, we're starting with Pastor Dan, he was taking you through breakthrough and connecting and bridging the last series to this present one, right through to Pastor Benny, who has talked about, your Lord, do it again, about what revival is. Revival is preparation, visitation, purification, transformation, uh, right through to the fact that you need to have an engine room for revival because prayer is that engine room. And you heard that, that powerful sermon on, on prayer and, and the kinds of prayer that we need to pray and how we need to gather together in, in prayer. And this church has not just been articulating about prayer, but you've actually come together for your revival prayer on two Friday nights so far. Is that right? And it's been an incredible, incredible time. Okay, so why don't you give yourselves a big hand for the fact that you are hungry for revival and you've been praying together for revival. Come on, let's give the Lord a big hand for that because there's something about prayer that, that just makes us hunger for a, a fresh visitation from God again. But this morning, I want to speak on what revival looks like when it actually lands when it actually comes into our, 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 to, to engage our lives and we encounter revival, what does it look like in real life? And how can we prepare ourselves to host, to usher, to shepherd, to flow with revival? And I say this in measured tones simply because, um, you know, while we all agree that there are many, many signs of revival which we all universally accept and agree on. Things like, you know, the preaching of the gospel, mass salvations, mass salvations, large number of people being saved, signs and wonders breaking out, confession and repentance uh, of, from sins and uh, reconciliation, community transformation, miracles, casting out of demons. I think we all agree these are the general great signs of revival. But revival brings with itself certain incidental happenings and brings with itself certain manifestations that many of us would find culturally very challenging and sometimes even objectionable uh, in, uh, you know, to our church traditions and what we're used to. So much so that historically when revival has happened, it has not just sometimes blessed the people, 
but sometimes caused so much angst that it sometimes divided the people of God in the middle of a revival. And sometimes, as I will show later, it stops revival in its tracks. So today, uh, I want to just say that revival is not always a gentle breeze, you know, making us love Jesus more and we re receive our first love of Jesus. And it's a wonderful, warm, flowing, continuous, blessed feeling of the presence and the fragrance of God. It is that, but it's more than that. Revival, when it happens, is often like a typhoon flow, blowing into a church, turning a church upside down and turning lives right way up. Can somebody say amen to that? And when people encounter the winds of revival, they're like, I'm not quite sure I want everything that there is here in revival. Uh, so I want to speak upon about revival. Uh, when revival comes, are you ready? So turn to your neighbor, give them a smile and say, are you ready? When revival comes, are you ready? Yeah, in, in wanting to prepare ourselves for revival, there are two things. You know, in, in, in this, and I want to cover it in two areas. Firstly, a reckoning with revival when it breaks up. And secondly, navigating revival when it spreads. So the first thing is, we encounter revival when it lands. In its all its, its, its facets, uh, warts and all. Reckoning with revival in real life when it breaks out. And secondly, how do we navigate revival? How do we continue to usher and host it? as it begins to spread. And one of the best passages for us to, to understand what it looks like is to go to Acts 19. Acts 19 is one of the great passages in the book of Acts about revival. There are a couple of passages uh, in the book of Acts, at least two, uh, or maybe three or four, actually, revival passages in Acts. But Acts 19 is the great passage on revival in the city and in the region of Ephesus. So Acts 19 uh, verses 10 to 20. This is what it reads. Verse 10. Uh, this continued for two years. The background to this was Paul had established the church of Ephesus in his second missionary journey. And now he had come back to revisit Ephesus on his third missionary journey. And uh, things already began to happen as he approached Ephesus. He encountered the disciples of John the Baptist, uh, prayed for them, and they were filled with the Spirit and spoke in tongues. And then he came into the city of Ephesus and started preaching in the synagogue. Uh, and uh, after about three months, they threw him out because they objected to this gospel message. So he went to the hall of Tyrannus and continued to expound the gospel there for two solid years. Day after day, he expounded the gospel. The word of God continued to grow and then suddenly something broke out at the end of the two years, sometime in that two years or at the end of the two years, a conflagration, a spiritual conflagration took place in the city of Ephesus. And we join it in verse 10. This continued for two years, the preaching of the gospel, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and the diseases left them, and evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, Paul I recognize, but who are you? 
And the man in whom the evil spirit was leaped on them and mastered all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord was extolled. Also many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced the magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Reckoning with revival. Okay, that's the first segment. What does revival look like when it really happens? Here in this passage, you see what revival can look like. By the way, has anyone here ever been in a revival? Can you lift up your hand? Wave it, at, wave it to me, just a few hands, just here and there. Uh, yeah, that's great. It, it's a life-changing experience. Uh, Nancy and I, we were in the Toronto revival in 1994. We flew all the way to Canada and we were with them for, I can't remember, a week, 10 days, we soaked everything that Toronto revival uh, brought along. Uh, and we have been experiencing also uh, uh, first-hand accounts with people who have been the, the, the people God have used for the East Malaysian revival. In 1973, revival broke out in the Kalabit Highlands amongst the people of the, the Kalabit people in the highlands of Barrio in Sarawak in East Malaysia. And uh, we have first-hand accounts. They are friends of ours who were used by God during the revival. And they were the authors of the book, The Barrio Revival. So... And we have visited at Barrio many times to minister to the people and, and just sense what post-revival can look like. It's, a, it's, a, it's an amazing, amazing um, a, a experience. So let me just say, uh, let me just, uh, just begin to just unpack what revival looks like when it actually lands. Firstly, as we all expect, revival is pulsating. Somebody say pulsating. There is mass salvation and mass preaching of gospels so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord. Uh, and so the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks. When he said, all the residents of Asia, all of Asia heard the Lord. It was not all the continent of Asia. It was not all of Asia Minor, which is present-day Turkey either. It was all of the Ionian province of Asia, of which Ephesus was the capital. And that segment of the country uh, is about probably about 12,000 square kilometers. It is about two-thirds the size of the nation of Wales. Okay, it is like the whole of Perth plus all the surrounding suburbs plus all the districts around Perth actually heard the word of Lord. Quite a sizable segment. So if you can talk about the Welsh revival, you can talk about the Ephesian revival because it was almost the size of a small nation. They all heard the word of the Lord. It, there was mighty proclamation of the word for two years by the Apostle Paul. And many, many people got saved. We don't know how many, but in the Welsh revival, in just a matter of 12 to 18 months, 150,000 people came into the kingdom. So that's the first thing we all agree with. When we all love the pulsation of revival, brings with it mass conversions, mass preaching of the gospel. Secondly, there was unusual signs and wonders. Okay, unusual signs and wonders. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched 
His skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and evil spirits came out of them. Just imagine, you know what? Uh, and, and, and you know, just handkerchiefs. Uh, I'm so sorry to tell you that if you don't carry a handkerchief, which I do, then you know when the revival comes, your tissues won't work. No, I'm just joking, okay. You know, uh, <laughs> so your sanitary wipes won't work, you know, just carry a handkerchief. But anyway, uh, when Paul blessed those cloths and those handkerchiefs and they were carried away, you drop them on your grandmother who is recovering from stroke in your home and she springs out of bed and makes you breakfast. Now that's incredible. How many of you like that? Can I see your hand? Wave your hands. That's great. And you know, that, that, that's what happened. And Luke as a doctor was so perceptive. He was so detailed. He didn't even say that Paul blessed these things and this were his, uh, you know, his own personal apparel and it worked because of this. Any apparel that touched his skin, touched his skin, Anything, you're just being a piece of cloth, touch your skin and will heal the sick. Somebody say, wow. How many would like to see something like that today? Can I see your hands? Now, you know what? Uh, this is not still the center of revival. It is one of the great phenomena of revival. It's unusual signs and wonders. You know, in a revival, people may come into a meeting, they're absolutely suicidal. They walk out through the door and they're completely healed and they have hope for life. And God has turned them around. Revivals bring healing, miracles, turnarounds, unusual. And thirdly, there's deliverance and de from demonic domination and bondages. There was burning of charms and fetishes, you know, amulets, sorcery books, horoscopes, all kinds of things that were, that were related to the demonic realm and occultic realm and sorcery and fortune telling and soothsaying and all these kinds of things. And when they gathered this all burning, Together, they were declaring to the world that we have no truck anymore with the powers of darkness. We don't believe in all these powers to protect us. We won't bow down and worship them. You know, these things cannot do anything for us. The, the power of Jesus is greater. In Jesus' name, amen. That's what they were declaring. And as they burned them to the tune of 50,000 pieces of silver, how much is that worth today? Probably about 1.5 million Aussie dollars. Okay, that's, that's a huge amount of money. Huge amount of money. And they're just burning up this paraphernalia. I remember many years ago, going to a house of a, of a very high-ranking Shell executive who was working in KK. And uh, he was married to a Scotswoman. And uh, they came to the Lord in dramatic fashion. And, uh, and uh, then they realized that, uh, that there was so much in the house that was related to occultic things. And this man, he, he is an extremely superstitious man that gone around Thailand, Cambodia, Vietnam, collected all kinds of trinkets, all kinds of idols, all kinds of demonic amulets and everything, and filled his whole house with it. And when he came to conviction that, these were, he, that he was going to turn to follow Jesus and these were demonic household things that were actually uh, keeping him in bondage, he decided to burn them. I remember going to his house with Pastor Nancy and we, we, we carted out wheelbarrow after wheelbarrow after wheelbarrow of stuff into the back garden and then we eventually burned them in a big bonfire. And it, was, it amounted to something like 250,000 no, 250, ringgit, which is about 80,000 Aussie dollars worth of stuff. And I said, what do you feel? All this thing, a quarter of a million ringgit of you know, stuff going up in fire and smoke. And he said, well, you know what? I feel so light. I feel so light. And today, he and his wife are serving as pastors in the northern part of Scotland. So when God does this, you know, these revivals are pulsating. Here's the second thing about revivals, okay? Revival 
it's painful. This is what revivals look like. Okay, the real face of revival. Revival is painful. Okay. Also, many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. Now, the word practices there, although it was written in the context, if you read the context, it's about sorcery and soothsaying and fortune telling and magics and occults and you know, the secret arts and all that kind of things. That's the context. But actually the word practices there is actually a Greek word praxis. And that Greek word praxis is used in general terms right across the epistles to actually categorize not just occultic practices, but also practices and deeds of the flesh. Like Romans 8.13, the same word is used to talk about do not subject yourself to deeds of the flesh. Okay, so that's the word of practice. So when the people came confessing and divulging their practices, they were not just confessing and divulging their secret arts. They were talking about confessing and divulging their secret practices, their addictive habits. So confessing, you must understand the verbs here. Firstly, confessing. They were telling everyone about what they've been doing in secret. That's painful. And sometimes you know, in, in our Asian culture, which is a, a very shame-based culture, that's very painful. When you see your uncle divulging his secret practices and, and telling everybody, it's a deep work of the Holy Spirit, but it's sometimes very offensive to us. It's painful. And not only were they confessing, they were divulging, which means that they were opening up what was in secret. These are not things that people knew. Whether it was pornography, whether it was secret sexual sins, whether it's secret addictions of sorts, whether it's gambling, whether it's substance abuse, whether it was some part of their life they've been living, a lie, a double life. Suddenly, the revival reveals that. So that's why revival is sometimes painful. Secret hatred, unforgiveness that we have, bitterness against somebody. We will not divulge to anybody else. Nobody knows. And the revival brings that. Of course, it ultimately leads to joy and reconciliation, but it's very painful. Revival is painful. So how many of you want revival? Can I see your hands? Okay, there's still quite a lot of hands go up. So we go, we'll go along and see how many of you still continue to want a revival. I tell you, it's one of the most exciting things that could happen. Okay, I remember in the 1973 Barrio Revival in the Calabit Highlands of uh, Sarawak. When that happened, you know, there was, uh, that first happened in a school, in a school. And it happened when the, the, the school um, teacher, who was the advisor of the Christian fellowship in the school, turned around to the students at one meeting and said, I don't feel I'm qualified to be your advisor anymore. They said, why not, teacher? He said, because I've got so many secret sins. Some, he, he just cried before them and said, I'm going to resign. Because, and you know, in Calabit culture, Asian culture there, you never have an, a, a respected person like a teacher telling you his secret sins. But that's what he did. He just said, I, I don't qualify. That's why I'm going to resign. And then suddenly, pandemonium broke out. One by one, the students started confessing their sins to each other. They started crying and wailing to God. And they started praying and crying out to God for forgiveness. And the Holy Spirit came in. That's the beginning of the Barrio Revival, 1973, October the 3rd, 1973. Next year will be the 50th year of the revival. And we're going, all going back to Barrio. And say, God, do it again. Not necessarily in Barrio, but in some other part of Asia, some other part of Malaysia, and maybe in Australia. Can somebody say amen? And that revival conflagrated, 
And the students, you know, they, they, were, in their, they were in a hostel. They were, they, were, they were praying in a hostel right into the night and the, the principal tried to shut it down. Because exams, public exams are coming in two weeks and he said, you've got to stop this nonsense. It's all high hysteria and emotionalism. And, and, and uh, he came against them. You know, day after day, until about the third day of the revival, God called them to pray for the principal. So we're praying for the principal that we converted. He was a totally backslidden Christian. And they came to the principal's house, knocked on his door and said, principal, can we, with all due respect, can we just pray for you because we want to ask God to bless you? And he's like, the principal was totally caught, you know, he was totally disarmed. He's like, okay, if you want to pray, just, just go ahead. You know, okay, let's get rid of the students quickly. Just pray, get, get, get them out of the way. And as, just before they prayed, one of the students said, and God has shown us, principal, with all due respect, that you have been putting your trust not in God, but in a charm, an amulet that is in your right pocket. And nobody knows this. The principal has always kept this charm, the secret amulet in his right pocket because he trusts the spirits, not God. Although he was totally backslidden Christian. And he's been doing it for years, but nobody knew. Nobody knew, only he knew. And with that revelation, he fell on his knees and cried out to God for forgiveness. And then he, he lifted up the lid on the revival and the revival spread right through the school. And it went into the churches. It went to the community. The Calabit communities of 5,000 people in the highlands of Borneo. And the whole community was, community was swept in revival fire. You see, it can be painful. It can also be perturbing. See, revival can be perturbing. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus who had evil spirits saying, I adjure you by Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest tried to do this. You, you can read it for yourself, okay? So it can be extremely perturbing because, you know, here you are in the midst of a revival prayer meeting like you had on Friday night. Let's assume that the Spirit of God came down. You had a foretaste of revival already, okay? You all had a foretaste of revival already uh, on your prayer meetings on Friday night. Can somebody say amen to that? How many of you want more? Can I see your hands? Wave it in the air. You want more? God's going to give you more. But supposing it was even better than what you had on Friday and the last two Fridays. And, and there's a wonderful fragrance of the Lord, the presence of the Lord, and there's power and there's, there's repentance and people crying out to God for forgiveness. And suddenly, in the midst of that, you had seven naked men running around, you know, charging out of this place, and somebody was deep and nice charging after them. What do you think? Are you in the middle of revival or not? Many of you would have problems with that. But in the Scriptures. And God, the Holy Spirit, doesn't miss. Why does He put it there? Why is it in the Acts of the Apostles for us? Because revival carries epiphenomenon. Sideshows, side happenings that come as a result of the Spirit of God you know, encountering demonic spirits. Comes as a result of demonic spirits trying to infiltrate revival. I'm trying to mess up God's people and God's church. It will happen. And that was. The seven sons of a Jewish exorcist, you know, wanted to use the name of Jesus because they'd seen it. They'd seen the show. They thought it was a show. They thought it was just a formula. And so they, they came to this demonic man, demonized man. And they said, you know, we command you. It's talks to the spirits. We command you. In the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches to get out. And the demonic spirit, then man starts speaking. You know, Paul I know. Jesus I know. Paul I recognize. And even if it was a Hokkien ghost or a spirit, it would say, Lucy Jui Jui. Lucy Samilang. If you're a Mandarin speaking, Nishishai. 
If it's Hakka, you can't eat it. If it's a Malay demon, he said, Kau siapa ini? If it was an Australian demon, he said, Who the tooth are you, mate? And then the demonic, the demonized man overpowered them, leapt on them and overpowered them. You read, need to read the Message Bible. The Message Bible says this. Then the possessed man went berserk. You know, he jumped on the exorcists, beat them all up, tore their clothes, naked and bloody. They all got away as best as they could. Just think about that. You cannot have more stark language than that tore up their clothes, they beat them all up, they're all blooded. Seven naked men running to get out of the sanctuary. And you're like, oh, hallelujah, the presence of God. <gasps> What's happening? Is this a revival? You bet it is. Because if you focus on this happening, you think, oh, there can't be a revival. God's not like that. Acts 19 tells us God was there. He was there. And so we must recognize the epiphenomenon. Epiphenomenon means sideshows, not the real heart of revival. The things that happen as a spillover as a result of the Spirit of God coming down. How many of you want revival? Can I see your hands? Oh, you still want revival? Are you sure? Turn to your neighbor and say, do you still want revival? Ask them. Okay, turn to your neighbor one more time and look strong and confident and say, I still want revival. Come on. Come on. Do you still want revival FCC? Yes or no? Really? Say it louder. Yes or no? Yes. I will tell you an experience of mine. In 1974, Pastor Nancy and I flew to Toronto because we heard happenings breaking out into the Toronto Airport Vineyard Church. We flew 23 hours to get to Toronto. The moment we arrived, we dumped our bags in the hotel and went straight for the first meeting. We were so hungry. And then we came into this meeting. It was the Toronto Airport Vineyard Hall. Uh, it was before they made, went to the new expo. They was just in the old church where they were in. Uh, and uh, not quite like that, you know, it was, it was like an old church. And people were sitting on the floor because they had to make room for each other. There was no, no, there were so many people. There, was, there was two of the chairs. People sitting on the floor. And there was a boring old man speaking. You know, in revival, even if you're boring and you can't speak to keep people awake, everybody will stay awake in a revival. <laughs> so there's hope for all of us. Guys, if you really wanted to preach and you can't keep people awake, wait for revival. You just walk out there, people will, you know, people listening intently because the Spirit of God was so evident. The power and the fragrance of God and the weight of God's presence was so evident. And then he said, now, we, now it's ministry time. Everybody stood up ready to receive ministry, you know. And then I saw these lines on, on the carpet. You know, these were tape lines on the carpet and they were all six feet apart. And I thought, what strange lines? He said, everybody stand on the lines, all your lines, you know, right through the hall. And I thought, why? Why six feet? Why the lines? And I thought, oh, everybody's going to receive ministry. And almost certainly, the anointing was so strong, everybody was going to fall. And why six feet? The average American height was six feet. <laughs> so we stood right at the back, you know, gingerly waiting. And just as we stood, you know, I looked up, waiting for the, for the man of God to just come in and lay hands on us. Suddenly, the guy in front of us, in, in the line in front of us, he turned, huge six-footer. He turned, looked at me, and he had redness and, and, and that evil gleam in his eyes. His whole eyes narrowed and focused on me. And he marched towards me. And I knew with, that was evil intent in him. He was about to pulverize me. And I, I turned quickly to the Lord, just stop him from doing that, Lord. Please help. And suddenly the Lord drew his attention and carried it to the next six-foot man. 
standing next to me. And he, he, drew, he went straight for this man and swung him a huge punch. And the man blocked it and then, you know, wrestled him to the ground, caught him by his neck, pulled him to the ground and wrestled him. But it took four men to subdue this one man. Subdue. He was struggling with them. And all the time, the ministry was going on. And he was there in front of us, this, this, this fight. You know, and it was four men, subdue one man. That you know, is demonic. And then after about 20 minutes, he was totally subdued. And they left him alone. And he was there lying on the floor. Then he got off, off the floor. And he shouted to the hall, the hall, I've got a message from God. And he collapsed on the floor. How many of you still want revival? <laughs> and Pastor Nancy had by the time moved back and said, let's go home. This is not revival. I said, Tony, you know, the presence of God is so strong even in this hall. You know, the Word of God is being taught. This is just an epiphenomenon. This is just a slideshow, just a sideshow. This is just, you know, some side infiltration by, by demonic spirits. This is not the real thing. This is, of course, just, 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 um, just something that's coming in just to distract us. And she said, let's go home. I said, we can't. We've, we've flown here 23 hours. We can't just turn around and go home. So I didn't come for this. I said, let's stay. And I persuaded her eventually to stay. And we stayed on for another week. And that's when we saw what God was doing in Toronto. I will show you a little bit more in, 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 uh, you know, later on. But this was what happened in Azusa Street. When the revival broke out in Azusa Street in Los Angeles in 1906, God used a one-eyed Afro-American man by the name of William J. Seymour. Not highly educated. And he was in, in Azusa Street. And uh, the Holy Spirit came. And people began falling under the power, crying out to God for mercy. And all kinds of things were happening. And you know, we had and black and white people were attracted to Azusa Street in their thousands, hundreds and thousands. Not hundreds of thousands, but hundreds and thousands. And they came to listen. They packed the place out. And when the Holy Spirit moved, they would fall down under the power of the Spirit. Now you must understand, in 1906, the Jim Crow laws for racial segregation was the standard in the United States. Black and white congregations do not mix. Black and white people do not mix in public places, whether it's restaurants or anywhere. And here it was happening in Azusa Street. The black and white people were falling under the power, sometimes lying next to each other, sometimes they're falling in a heap on top of each other, men and women even. And William J. Seymour didn't know what to make of this. So he called his mentor and his Bible teacher from Topeka, Kansas, which is uh, Charles Parnham. Charles Parnham was his Bible teacher in Kansas when William J. Seymour was in Bible school. Ask him to come. And it was Charles Parnham who taught William J. Seymour about the, the, the gifts of the Holy Spirit, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the revival. And so he asked his mentor to come and, and, and just preach in his church. And when Charles Parnham came, he saw what was happening. He said, this is not of God. This makes God's stomach sick because in his mindset, it broke the cultural norms, the racial norms. And so what Charles Parnham then did was that he went across the road, down the street, and started another church to usher in the real revival. But history tells us that never happened. The revival remained in Azusa Street and continued. And as a result of that, Many of you are here today. I will tell you why. Because of the Pentecostal revival that came in the last century, the church grew. The church grew. 
it was Azusa Street through the Pentecostal revival that grew the church. The fastest growing church in the last century was the Pentecostal church. And that rescued Christianity when all the state churches right across the world, state, mainline denominational state churches were all in a decline. God knew what he was doing. But here it is, it can be perturbing. So how do we navigate revival? Which is the next section. So you can see, revival can be pulsating. It can be painful. It can be perturbing. Our job is to recognize what is the main thing and step away from the sideshows. That's the job. How do we do that? How do we navigate revival? How do we continue to flow and usher and shepherd revival so that it continues to happen in FCC, in Perth, in our nation? How do we do that? There are three keys. The first is the Word of God. The first is the Word of God. You must understand that when revival broke out in Ephesus in Acts 19, there was no written scriptures except for the old a Jewish, uh, the, the Old Testament. But you know, the Old Testament itself was not going to be really helpful unless you prepare to really study it very deeply and know it very well. Because within the, within the Jewish context, you know, it is hard to find out Jew references in the Old Testament to speaking in tongues, for example. It's really hard. Directly, it's very hard. So, so, you know, there was no written New Testament at the time. So what was the church founded on? We know what the church was founded on. Jesus is the cornerstone and is the foundation of the apostles. Can somebody say amen? And what does that mean? In Acts chapter 2, it means that they were devoted themselves in fellowship, the breaking of bread, and the apostles' doctrine. So it was largely oral. It was oral teaching. So when Paul was teaching there, it was the Word of God, Word of God. Of course, he went back to the Old Testament references, of course, again and again and again, which Paul is a rabbinical teacher who would always go back to the Old Testament references. But a lot of what God was doing, like fill in, filling with the Holy Spirit and, and, and speaking in tongues and all that, a lot of it was coming forth as fresh, as a fresh revelation from the Old Testament of what God was doing today. So the Word of God was going on. Week after week, day after day, week after week, for two years, it was going on. In that time, the Word of God became powerful. And what, what is the Word of God? Essentially, what does the Word of God help? The, how does it help us in a revival? Well, we know that the essentials must be there. The Word of God tells us that revival must glorify God. Somebody say amen. Jesus is Lord. Can somebody say amen? If any spirit, spirit does not acknowledge Jesus is Lord, it's from a different spirit. 1 John 4 tells us that. We, we have all these things in scriptures. We know that people who are born again and safe and totally washed in the blood of Jesus and revive of God in the Holy Spirit must display the fruits of the Holy Spirit. Somebody say amen. Love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, meekness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. God, God experience those things and display those things as fruits of the Holy Spirit. People will turn away from their sins because everyone in Christ, everyone is a new creation. How do we know all these things? The Word of God. So the Word of God is supreme. That's the first thing. But what is the ultimate thing the Word of God tells us about revival? It's a time when the glory of God is manifest in a mighty, tangible, transformational way. That's what it says. The central to the revival is the glory of God. All revivals, without exception, must see a fresh outpouring of God's glory that's tangible, that's widespread, that's transforming. It arrests people with holy awe. Oh, and also a holy terror. Okay, it must arrest people. 
with a holy awe and holy terror in their lives, resulting in repentance, reverence, transformation. If it doesn't have that at the center, whatever may be happening in the church, in the community, however excited you may be, however good the worship may be, it's not revival. Okay? It's just a good time. It's just a fantastic time. It's a great gathering of God's people together, but it's not revival. In revival, the glory of God is manifestly, transformationally, widespread, universally evident. And it brings a holy awe and a holy terror. And people turn from their sins to the living God. And there they encounter the holiness and the glory of God. Somebody say amen. And this is what the Bible tells us. In verse 17, fear fell on them all. And the name of the Lord was magnified. Now the word fear here is actually the word terror or alarm. It was not reverential awe. Fear fell on people. Just like It arrests people. You know, just like we would say in Singapore and Malaysia, don't play play. <laughs> this is God. You don't play play anymore. Don't play church. This is God. Fear, that's the word. That word there is not reverential awe. It's terror. It's an alarm. And then where does the awe come in? And the name of Jesus was magnified. That's awe. And one day when revival hits, Perth hits Australia, you know what? The name of Jesus will no longer be used as a swear word. How many would like to see that? Can I see your hands? Oh man, can you say, you know, people won't be saying Jesus in, a, in that way anymore. They will be saying, Jesus. It's the way you say it that reflects what's going on in your heart. How many would like to see, be part of this? Just think, you go to work every day. The name of Jesus is being used in all kinds of other language. Obscene, swear, curse. But the name of Jesus was magnified above all. So, you know when, when people, when, when the language changed, something has changed in their hearts. Come and say amen. As Pastor Benny said two weeks ago, when the Welsh revival came to the Welsh coal miners, every other word of theirs was a blankety blank. So when they changed the language, the donkeys and the mules pulling up the coal didn't know how to obey them. And that was exactly what happened. Fear fell on them. The glory of God is both doxa, doxa, and both kabod. In the, Old, in the New Testament, the glory of God is the Greek word doxa. In the Old Testament, is kabod. Doxa means renown, reputation. Kabod means the weight. The glory of God, if you combine these two words, would be the effulgence and the radiance of God's renown. His reputation. Everybody knows something is happening because Jesus is there. And then the weight of His presence fills the place or the people so that even the priests could not enter the temple of Solomon. That is the glory. And when the revival comes, the glory comes. Everybody coming nearby is zapped. You know, how many of you have ever been struck by lightning before and survived? Can I see your hands? <laughs> I, I'm serious. I'm serious. Wave it to me. You know, the world record... Just one or two people, praise God, man. So good that you're here, bro, that you survived. But the world record for somebody who was struck by lightning and survived is a man called Roy Sullivan. He was struck by lightning seven times and he survived. He was a park ranger in Virginia and he was to survive. One time, the lightning blew off, uh, burned off all his hair. Another time, all his eyebrows went. Another time, all his leg hair went, okay? 
and another time all his toenails went. Another time he was scourged at the back by burn marks, but he survived. And then he fell in love with a fellow park ranger, you know, and, and tried to woo her. But she eventually just broke off the relationship and jilted him. And in despair, he committed suicide. So what lightning could not do seven times? A woman one time finished him off. Okay, so I'll just tell you, it's a joke. Okay. But here's the point. The weight of the cabal of God is so strong that even as you come to FCC for the meeting, in the car park, you're falling down and weeping. Did it happen? Yeah. It happened in the uh, Azusa Street when people saw a spiritual fire on a building. As they're approaching, they fell on their knees. They crawl sometimes. It happened in the New Hebrides Revival. Hebrides Revival in 1949, 1953. Duncan Campbell tells us, when people were passing the police station at one o'clock in the morning to go to a to, to, to all night prayer meeting, they fell on their knees and cried out to God for mercy when they were miles from the church. They were zapped during that time. The second thing that happens that we, we use as the second key by which we navigate the word, the, the revival, is the fruit of the outpouring. What were the fruits of the outpouring? Well, you know, when you look, when you look at Ephesus, there were immense fruits of the outpouring. Great, great fruits of the word outpouring. The word of God was preached. There was mass turning to Christ. There was confession and repentance. There were signs and wonders. You know, demons were expelled. There was public break or severance from demonic practices. Uh, there was fear of God in the city. Were these fruits good fruits or not? Yes, yes. They were fantastic fruits. So how do you navigate revival? Well, look at the fruits. Look at the fruits. Jesus said, by their fruits, you shall know them. Matthew 7, 17. But when you know the fruits, you will see messes. If you open your eyes in a revival, when it really lands, there'll be things that are what I call epiphenomenon, sideshows. And sometimes it can look a little bit messy. For example, what were the mess? Okay, some of the messiness in, the pub, in, in, in Ephesus. For example, there was a public confession of sins. I will tell you, while we all salute the public confession of sins, when it happens to people whom we trust and know, people who we respect, people who are members of our family, wow, it's, it's culturally very challenging. But it happens. And it's for a good thing. God is not there to humiliate people. It's because that we are in the presence of God and there is no more shame because Jesus has taken away our shame. Somebody say amen. There's a public confession of sin. Not only is there a public confession of sin during that time, but you know, uh, uh, during that time, there is also uh, public impropriety. I told you about the seven sons of Sceva. See, most cultures react violently to this. Supposing you see people, you know, who, who, like, you know, you see people who are very carnal and sensual, behaving carnally and sensually. Is it revival? Yeah, these are epiphenomenon. Sometimes you have infiltration from other carnalities and psychological carnalities and spiritual carnalities. Most cultures react violently to this. You know, there's public offenses to people of other faiths. In, in, in Ephesus, it was the capital city of the worship of Dinah Artemis, of a demon. It was the capital city for the worship. And it offended, as you read Acts 19, you will find that it offended the people in the city who worship Dinah Artemis. Just think, if revival breaks out, 
there may be people of other faiths who are offended. Not because we have done anything, but just because the Word of God has just gone out to bless people. You know, people are turned around, turned back to, to Jesus. Others have come into the kingdom. Other people who are other persuasions take offense. And in the case of Ephesus, they became violent. A mob broke out. So here's the fourth thing. Supposing there was public disorder. I'm not saying that Christians are the cause of public disorder, but a reaction which happened in Ephesus. There was a public disorder. The Christians didn't do anything. There was just public disorder out there because people were reacting. And then the magistrates and the, the, the city council had been involved, which happened in Ephesus. How many of you still think God is in this? How many of you still want revival? A few hands now go up. Why did the Word of God give us this? Because it's there. Now, you must understand, Christians did not cause the violence. Christians were not, were, were not in any way confrontational. They just flowed with what the Spirit of God was doing. And there was a reaction in that time. It happened there in the city of Ephesus. So, so when we understand this, when we understand this, we will know how then do we judge? Some people get very upset. How do we judge? You know, why is the council actually questioning on this? Okay, we have, of course have to answer. We have to tell them why. We have not done anything, but this is what's hap happened. You know, many, many people of, you know, even other persuasions have come to know the Lord. They just came of their own free will. They came to know the Lord. But you know, oh, but the authorities are involved. So it cannot be revival because they no laws were broken. As in this case in Ephesus, no laws were broken. Because uh, the, the city clerk dismissed all this riot, these people are causing trouble. Uh, but how many of you feel confident to continue to flow in the revival? How many of you would flow con feel confident God is still in this revival? Can I hear an amen to that? Amen. Truly amen? 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 They flowed in the revival. And you know, this is what happened to, to, to many of us, okay? And finally, by the state of our hearts. Okay, I'm just going to close very quickly because I'm running out of time, but just let me just say this quickly. The third key is the state of our hearts. The first two keys are objective. The Word of God and the fruits of the revival. It's objective. You can see it for yourself. The state of our hearts is subjective. This is two objective, one subjective. Why subjective? It's very important. Because how we interpret the revival depends on the state of our hearts. If we are not, if we are, we are, if we are self-seeking and standoffish, but not Jesus-seeking, if we are spiritually dry and hardened, but not spiritually hungry, if we are doctrinally bound to our narrow definitions of certain denominational doctrines, but are not Jesus-loving, we will tend to use the Word of God as we see it to judge the revival harshly. We will judge it harshly and we will point out why this is not revival and we will be pointing a lot to the epiphenomenon. We won't be pointing to the fruit. We won't be pointing to how the revival itself actually authenticates the Word of God and vice versa. We won't because the state of our hearts is quite deceptive. The book of Jeremiah tells us, you know, our hearts is desperately corrupt and deceitful. Who can understand it? And as a result of that, sometimes people try to control the revival like Uzzah did. Uzzah. Do you know what? It was just the presence of God was going on the cart and it stumbled. Of course, it sounds like revival has its stumbles. And we're like, I need to control this. 
Spirit of God slew Israel. Don't die by the side of the ark because you think it's your job to control a revival. It's your job to explicate a revival, to usher a revival, shepherd it so that the good things of revival happen so that the bad things don't come in. Sure. It's not your job to control. I, it has to be this way or no way. Revival is under God's control. Somebody say amen to that. How many of you still want revival? Can I see your hands? Come, just challenging you, showing you what revival really looks like. Because that's what's happened. So you know, when, when we went to Toronto in the early days, we, we saw all these epiphenomenon. You know, one of the marks of Toronto, as you know, is holy laughter, people rolling on the floor and laughing for hours. You know, but when the first thing that marked me out, marked Toronto out was when I went to the, to the meetings, revival meetings that they had. Day and night, day and night, they were just going on. You know, people, the ushers would greet us at the door and they're like, mm, welcome to Toronto. There's one thing about Toronto, they had this unusual jerks. Everybody was joking. Kid you not. I, I'm not stereotyping them, okay, to make fun of them, but this is exactly it. They're like, you come to the door, like, how are you? Great to see you. You're from, oh, Malaysia. <laughs> And I'm like, what is this? I didn't travel 23 hours right across the globe, globe to see a bunch of jerks. <laughs> and when we came for, back from the meetings, you know, everybody would be jerking, jerking around and we're like, what is this? And I mocked them. I remember coming back to the hotel rooms, uh, you know, to our hotel room and as, as soon as the hotel door was shut, I pretend I had the jerks, you know. Oh, I, I said to Nancy, just look at me. I was mocking them. And then one day, the Spirit of God fell on me in one of those meetings. I rolled on the floor and laughing for hours. And I woke up, I made my way back to the seat, I remember, at the far corner. And I was walking, I started joking. And Nancy was sitting there and said, oh no, it cannot happen to you. And when I got to her, I fell and crashed onto the pile of chairs and everybody was laughing at me. But what happened? It's an epiphenomenon. God did something in my heart. It's not so much your church. It's what do you do when you get off the floor after your laughter, after your joke? Is Jesus real? Is the love of the Father real? Do you turn away from sin to live for God? Has God brought you to a place where you, you depend on Him and you encounter Him afresh? And you know, one day, one of the things that really got me in, uh, you know, it was a vineyard church in Toronto. So in vineyard, you know, those days, you know, you must understand this was 30 years ago. So 30 years ago, when you minister in God's house, you dress well, tie, jacket, everything else. But in vineyard church, these guys were just walking around, you know, in what we do today, totally dressed down, which is okay today, but in those 30 years ago, they're totally dressed down. I thought the Holy Spirit would totally be offended by people totally dressed down, especially, you know, as they're ministering, you know, they're ministering and drinking Coke. I mean, distilled water is okay, but Coke, you know, and it's not even like a light coke. It's, you know, the real, the, the, that kind of stuff. So I thought, this is, the Holy Spirit can't move. And one day the, whole, the, the minister was walking along and he said, there's somebody here. Your name is Sonia. God wants to speak to you. You're in that far corner. This is a church of about, this is a meeting of about three, 4,000 people. In that corner, Sonia, God, can you come forward? God wants to speak to you. Nobody came forward. And then she, then he waited. I'm sure it's in that corner and your name is Sonia. Is there anybody there? He called out. Nobody came. Son, we're waiting. Is that Sonia there? God wants to speak to you. Nobody came. And then suddenly, somebody appeared. A lady appeared on that side. And uh, came forward with an usher. Oh, is your name Sonia? He said, she said, yes. 
Okay, we'll pray for you in a short while. But you're not the person. There's somebody there, your name is Sonia. I thought if I were the minister and waited for two minutes and nobody with Sonia appeared, I'd take anyone that comes from any direction. <laughs> And eventually a girl came, Sonia came up after about three, four minutes of wait. He prayed for her, told her, you have, I, I normally don't say this, but I say this so that you would know that it's from God. You have been suicidal many times in your life, blah, blah, blah. And he said that, she just wept and wept. But God wants to say to you, welcome back to the Father's house. You feel the love and embrace of God, the Father around you. And we're like, what's going on here? It's, you know, whatever it is, it means a lot to her. But that night, Sonia, the, that was in the morning service. In the evening, Sonia rose and gave her testimony. And this is what happened. She went to a church when she was, a, she was in her 18 years old. And she fell in love with the deacon of a church who was married, had kids. Deacon of a church left his wife, divorced his wife, married her. And then he became abusive sexually and physically violent. And then eventually the whole marriage broke up, threw her out into the streets. She had no job. By that time she was pregnant. She gave birth to her first, uh, for her child. And then had to kind of do all kinds of menial jobs. She hated the church. She heard the hypocrisy of Christians. And then uh, she eventually then uh, married a second time on the rebound. Somebody say who said he loved her. And the same thing happened. Physical and sexual violence came in. And she was, the whole marriage broke up. The son was growing up that time. And eventually, you know, just pre-teens, you know, she was trying to make ends meet. And, and uh, the son met an accident and was killed. She was absolutely devastated. Married a third time on the rebound. And then uh, that marriage broke up too. Because violence. And one day she was walking past church and she heard singing. She had heard those songs 20 years before. She had not heard it before for a long, long time. She went to the church, sat down. Somebody said to her, you should go to Toronto. She said, what's happening in Toronto? I don't know what to go to Toronto. God has just told me to buy your ticket to Toronto. And he said, I don't take charity. She was trying to argue, but the guy said, prevail upon, just go to Toronto. He says, what's happening? There's a revival there. You need to go. God will touch your life. She came to Toronto, to the airport church. 2,000, 4,000 people now. She sits in a corner on that side. She sat down on her seat. This is what she said. She sat down there. She said, I don't know why I'm in the midst of this large number of people who are so, so holy. And she looked up to the sky. She said, Lord Jesus. She said, my name is Sonia. And just as she said that, the minister, we were there. The minister walked around and said, there's a lady over there. Your name is Sonia. Will you come forward because God wants to speak to you? When you have revival, these incredible things appear. And you suddenly have an awesome realization of the holiness of God. It's a completely new dimension. All those arguments that you had, your theology, your doctrine, it's not that important. It's just sometimes the way we interpret it becomes so narrow that it has to be that way. That God breaks. And you could, you could, you could hear a pin drop that night. And He's going to do it again. Can somebody say amen? So what's the state of your heart? Because on the state of your heart depends on where the revival is ushered. Many people know Evan Roberts was the man God used for revival. Many people know that. But what many people do not know was that Evan Roberts came under the influence of a woman called Jessie Penn Lewis. Do you know why the Welsh revival only lasted 12 months, 18 months? 1904 to 1905. 
was an amazing revival. 150,000 people came in. And as a result of that, what was transferred eventually went into the Azusa Street. Its work was done, but it could have lasted longer. And the reason for that was that Evan Roberts, the man God used for the Welsh revival, came under the influence of a woman called Jesse Penn Lewis. Jesse Penn Lewis, he had known and met at the Keswick Convention many years before. And he had admired Jesse Penn Lewis a lot because Jesse Penn Lewis was very educated, eloquent, an author, a woman of distinction, a very spiritual woman. And when Evan Roberts, and Evan Roberts, you know, was, was a coal miner. He was not very well educated. And when Evan Roberts was actually exhausted during the Welsh Revival, he went around preaching. Jesse Penn Lewis offered him residence at her home with her husband in Leicester. And so, Evan Roberts went to live with Jesse Penn Lewis and her husband. Jesse Penn Lewis had grave doubts about the Welsh Revival. She actually spoke against it that many of the supernatural happenings were not of God, but of demons. And so the Elijah of the Welsh Revival, Evan Roberts, came under the influence of the Jezebel, some people call her, of the Welsh Revival. And from the time Evan Roberts left Wales in 1905, he never went back to Wales again for another 20 years. He was under Jesse Pence Lewis' influence. And eventually, Evan Roberts doubted what was happening in the Welsh Revival was truly of God. And six years after the Welsh Revival was over in the year 1912, Jesse Penn Lewis and Evan Roberts co-authored a book called The War on the Saints, which denounced the supernatural manifestations of the Welsh Revival. And within about 13 months after that, Evan Roberts realized his mistake and withdrew his name from co-authorship. But it was too late. Damage had been done. But God was able to use even the short 18 months of the Welsh Revival to save 150,000 lives and eventually to transfer that fire to Azusa Street in Los Angeles. The work was done. But just think, just think, what might have happened if Evan Roberts had, had, had known and guarded himself well? The state of your heart is very important as to how we usher, host, and how we nurture revival when it comes. So are you ready for revival? Means reckoning with the reality of revival when it lands, what it looks like. And secondly, learning the three keys of how we host usher revival through the Word of God, through the fruit of the revival, and through the state of our hearts, which we must guard against. And here I leave you as I want to pray for each and every one of us right now. Can we all heads bowed, all eyes closed right now. Father God, I thank you for the word this morning. I just thank you that you have spoken to us. Lord, it's been a wonderful time we see, and yet revival will always challenge us because all we've known sometimes of you and how you function is in a church. It's wonderful what we see in a church and we have loved the church, but it's only a small fragment of what you truly are and who you truly are. So we pray, Father, that as you will show us your glory once again, that all of us here, before we go to meet with Jesus face to face, we will see revival. Somebody say, Amen. Our hands will touch your God, the fruits of revival. Our eyes will see God, the manifestations of revival. And our hearts will rejoice and experience the wonderful fragrance and the presence and the power of revival. We ask all this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, Amen.
Amen and amen and amen.